Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manesh. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Sarasota, Florida. Welcome to the show, Martin Sines. Thanks for having me on, Victor. Much appreciated. Well, great to have you here. Martin, you and I believe one thing to our very core, and that is we're control freaks. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But we don't want to leave the world to chance. But before we dive into that, maybe let's get a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey. Sure, absolutely. I've embraced my inner control freak, as I'm sure you have as well. It's kept us out of a lot of trouble, I would say. Absolutely. But in terms of my background, I had received an MBA from Drexel University in 2002 and got a corporate job. And a few years later, I got fired from that corporate job. I realized, along with my wife, that having a job in corporate America was not going to lead to my aspirations and just wasn't a fit for myself. So I picked up a little purple book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad and read it, and it transformed my life. And from that point on, 2004, I became an entrepreneur. My wife and I founded a government contracting company by which we sold a museum exhibit products and services to the federal government on a prime level. And from that point, we just accumulated after many hard you know, years of hard road and many times we were making payroll day of and being just flat broke. We had across the hump, so to speak. And we started buying commercial properties and residential properties, starting with the building that we operated our company out of. However, what we realized with small business ownership was that it was a lot of 100-hour work weeks. It was the opposite of achieving freedom of time. And so since we were starting a family, we decided to sell the company and really be in pursuit of something that would achieve financial freedom for us in our lives, as well as freedom of time, which time became more important to us as we got older. I found that with mortgage note investing. Very interesting. Fascinating. Well, you know, there's so many different ways. There's no one pathway into this business. I mean, you came at it through entrepreneurship, through selling to the U.S. government. I came into it from being a microprocessor designer. There's no two career paths that are alike. And that's actually kind of the beauty of this. So today you're focused on which aspect? Is it still note investing or are you focused more on the properties themselves? So actually what I realized, my wife and I, is that landlording was great and we were making a terrific annuity play and we still own and manage those properties. However, it did not meet our financial aspirations where we were looking to be in life. And so what we did is we switched gears and went all in to mortgage note investing. Now, what this entails is going into the secondary market space and sourcing and purchasing mortgages that are in default. So these are mortgages whereby the borrowers have not made a payment for four or five years and vetting those mortgage notes, vetting not just the note, but also the property that's collateralizing the note and making purchases and then working with the homeowner to keep them in their homes with a payment plan they can afford while making a profit for myself as a business owner. And so that really has been what I have focused on. I have worked out personally over a thousand of those loans 
myself over the course of time. And now our company, we buy millions of dollars on an ongoing basis. I love that model. Just to spell it out for the listeners at home, what you're doing is you're buying a distressed note, probably between 20 and 30 cents on the dollar. You're going to do a loan modification with the homeowner so that now this can go from being a non-performing loan to a performing loan. You're going to give the note a haircut, maybe at 50 or 60 cents on the dollar. And then at that point, you're still sitting on a performing loan. You can hold that loan at that point, or you can sell it even at a discount and still make a significant profit. Probably in under 90 days, you've got that note seasoned and you can sell that note at a discount, but at a huge premium to what you paid for it in a very short period of time. Have I got it right? 100%. Now there is a legacy play on this too, because my partner and I created Bequest Funds, which is an income fund which is a 506C Reg D fund, which houses performing mortgages. So once those mortgages become seasoned over time and they meet underwriting criteria, then they're bought into the Bequest Funds family. So how do you make the determination of a property apart from assessing the physical property? Because anytime you are investing in an asset, you've got to look at three things. You've got to look at the submarket, you've got to look at the property, and you've got to look at the borrower, and you've got to qualify all three. How do you make a decision that this particular property, this single family home on, you know, any street suburbia is going to be the one for you to invest in? Sure. So we put them through a waterfall due diligence process whereby we first evaluate the property. So it's a property valuation. We look at various fair market value data points. We look at sales comps. We can get exterior BPOs because you don't have access to the interior of the property. And so we make an assessment from a fair market value perspective. Next, we look at things like lien validity, lien placement for a mortgage loan. We look at equity coverage based on our fair market value. Then we also look at a criteria with the credit reporting to understand the makeup, the characteristics of that bar. Are they hyper consumer? Are they frugal? What's their behavioral patterns? We'll look at skip tracing to understand the bar's background. We do a few other tactics, pull an O&E report to understand, again, lean validity, lean positioning, owner-occupied status. And from that, we make a determination as to not just is the value of this property, which is significant, but really at the end of the day, who is the bar and what is their ability to pay me? And that's really the end game. We actually take back properties less than 1% of the time because our due diligence has such a heavy focus on that one mission. And that is who is the bar and what is their ability to pay? Presumably you've encountered a variety of different borrowers, folks that maybe have had damaged credit, perhaps because of a single event, could be a health issue, could be a divorce. Very different, very distinct from the habitual spender that can't stay out of Best Buy every week and they're always maxing out their credit card. Victor, it's amazing. You need to come right into our space here. You're a natural fit. You just named two out of the three (laughs) major reasons why there's default in the first place. We see one of three things occur when someone goes into default. That is, it's either love, relationship-wise, they get a divorce, or their health goes south for some reason or they lost their job or they're now underemployed. Fast forward four to five years, they're in a different point in their life, hopefully in a better point, where they got their job back, they remarried, or they've recovered health-wise. So when we're buying that loan, it may have had a point in time where they stopped paying. And what happens is it becomes a habit for the borrower. 
they stop paying and they just sweep it under the rug or they thought it was taken care of or something like that. And then, so the idea is four or five years later, when we're engaging with the borrowers, we're number one, we're compassionate. And number two, we find out what they can afford to pay. And then since we bought it at a discount, we're trying to match it up for a win-win situation. And presumably you've taken them from a place where they had assumed their equity was completely wiped out to one where you can actually show them a pathway to getting some of that equity back. Possibly even on day one, they would be sitting on some equity. At that point, you are their new best friend. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of times with some cases, the bar is more focused on their equity situation and that's more relevant to them. It's just hitting a certain monthly dollar figure that they can afford. So really it comes down to understanding the bar and what their objectives are and working with that. In this day and age right now where we're at, where there's a huge housing bubble, we're getting payoffs left and right. So people are feeling real good from an equity coverage situation and they're going out and refinancing and paying us off, whether we're in the senior or junior lien class. Talk to me a little bit about the time frame when we hear of a property going into default. The notion is, you know, you're months away from foreclosure and somehow you're buying notes that have been sitting in that distressed situation on someone's balance sheet for four or five years. That's a long time, especially if it's an A lender, a bank. They don't want that sitting on their balance sheet for that long. How is that happening? That's really kind of something above my pay grade in terms of how the internal mechanics of a bank operates. I know they do a lot of internal charge-offs of this debt. And so that plays a big part of how they're making adjustments to their balance sheet. However, at some point in time, this defaulted paper, it moves these loans out of some securitized bucket that the bank is operating with, and it moves that paper. They create tranches and it moves into the secondary market. And what normally happens is it gets sold to a hedge fund that buys these mortgage loans into the billions of dollars. And then hedge fund A may sell that, may flip that whole tranche to hedge fund B and double their money. The short end of it is that four or five years has passed and no lender or hedge fund has really done anything to work with the borrower and to educate the borrower as to a per diem interest arrears clock that's been ticking or helping them get back on track until it hits our desk. Fascinating. And so who are you buying from? Are you buying from the hedge fund? Are you buying from the lender directly? Or is the package that might be 15, 20 pages long being broken up into smaller chunks and sold off in pieces? How's that go? So normally we're buying from hedge funds. However, in some cases we're buying from hedge funds where they are just the conduit for the lender to offload into the secondary market. So we're kind of waiting as the active buyer slash operator on the other side. And the hedge funds themselves, for whatever reason, don't seem to be diving deep into the list and doing the, I'll say, heavy lifting, for lack of a better term, although it's not particularly heavy lifting, to get these loans performing and multiply the value that way. Yeah, there's definitely juice to be squeezed. However, you know, it just depends on what the hedge funds are set up for. Some of them are set up just to move heavy volume, just to flip heavy volume. And they're making enough profit that way. And others, they may do some asset management tactics on the back end to try to get some low-hanging fruit to the table for reinstatement with some of these loans. And then they sell off the rest. So they have a mixed approach. Are there particular jurisdictions that you go after? Obviously, the laws vary state by state, perhaps even county by county. 
Are there jurisdictions that you like to work within, others you want to stay away from? We buy in all states. However, we price things accordingly. So if we're in some states that are heavy, judicial, lengthy lead time for foreclosure, and where there's just more cost and time involved, then we're going to price it according to that. However, we buy in all states. We're long-term players. So you know, I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life. I've been you know eight years full-time at this, and I got another, I don't know, 30 years, hopefully. And so to me, it doesn't matter if something will take a year to work out or two years to work out. Fascinating. Well, Martin, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? To visit us at bqfunds.com, or they can go to noteinvestingmadeeasier.com. That's bqfunds.com or noteinvestingmadeeasier.com. I love it. Well, Martin, thank you for sharing your story. It's fascinating. I love what you're doing. And for the listeners at home, definitely reach out to Martin at bqfunds.com. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.